This is IT Visionaries, your number one source for actionable insights and exclusive interviews with CIOs, CTOs, and CISOs, and many more. I'm your host, Albert Chow, a former CIO, former sales VP, and now podcast host. Discover Zayo's expansive network maps on their website and see where their network can take you. With low latency, reliable 400 gig and 800 gig enabled routes, it's the modern network solution you've been searching for. Welcome everyone to another episode of IT Visionaries. And today we have a special guest. His name is Justin Mesker and he's the vice president of cloud and data center solutions at a little company called E+. And when I say it's a little company, it's not little at all. Justin, welcome to the show. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Hey, listen, if People are listening and they're not familiar with what is E+. Why don't you go ahead and let's start the conversation there. What is E+, and what does E+, do? Yeah, sounds good. So E+, we're a technology reseller and, and consulting services firm. Uh, it focuses on really helping customers deliver business outcomes via technology. Uh, do that across five core areas, data center, cloud, networking, security, and collaboration. Uh, as far as background, about 32-year-old company, publicly traded, global footprint, I'm on the global strategy team uh, leading our cloud and data center solutions. And, and my team's focus is on really just helping our customers accelerate digital transformation and modernization initiatives via hybrid cloud models. So across data centers, co-location facilities, and then public cloud. Does E plus have a specific industry or vertical that it specializes in, or does it help customers in all different places? All different places. We do quite a bit of work in the areas of public sector, healthcare, financial services, technology and service providers. But really, the things that we do are pretty pervasive across industries. That's awesome. So that means you get exposed to all types of configurations, setups, requirements, infrastructure requirements, both you you said, I think you said f- federal or you do government work as well. Is that accurate? Yeah. Public sector, yep. Yep. So then that, then you have a new layer of requirements on top of that yeah. <laughs> and you work in healthcare. So you have different requirements there, but give us an idea of what you're seeing because some of you, our listeners are born in the cloud. So they don't ever have really ever thought about some of the things that you have to think about, right? Of course, most of the enterprises were born in data center and now they're trying to integrate more cloud services. And we've had all kinds of different customers in different beliefs. But the idea is not too long ago, there was this big migration. Everyone needs to go cloud, right? Then people thought, oh, everything's going to go 100% to the cloud. Then it started being like, uh, wait a second. We don't want to put all of our eggs in the cloud. Give us a night. You kind of smiled there. Where do you see things stay? And you mentioned hybrid earlier. Is that becoming the enterprise standards? Like we're going to go multi-cloud data plus data center. We're at no points of no single points of failure. Give us an idea of what you're seeing across the sector. Yeah, lots of unpack there. Um, I think hybrid, the answer is definitely hybrid. And the reason is that, you know, no one thing's perfect for everything. And so I, you're going to hear me continually say, you know, why? What's the why behind everything you're doing? And so I look at it and say, when you're deploying technology, you're doing it to hit a business outcome. You're doing it to something for the business. And where you're going to do that just depends on what you're trying to do what the application is that's servicing it up, what the team is that's managing it, et cetera. So I think the the trend we see right now is that people are adopting hybrid strategies because they need to have the flexibility to deploy the right place at the right time for the right workload. Uh, those that were born in the cloud, they were they, they started there and they would have a why of why go to data center. And those that were born <laughs> in the data center have a why and that's why would I go to cloud. Um, but at the end of the day, it's really just about matching up that outcome with the right thing. Yeah, and I've seen... a. Uh... 
a shift now because uh, some of these companies that were born in the cloud are now getting some of their bills and saying, hey, wait a second. <laughs> Someone told me cloud was supposed to be cheaper and they're finding out firsthand. It's actually not or it, not always. Let's That's the best way. Nothing is absolute, I guess, in tech, right? That's the best way to describe it. For sure. How would you describe it? <laughs> I think that's that's precisely it. I think the, the right workload to play the right way in the cloud is going to be more cost effective, more secure and more scalable. The right workload deployed the wrong way in the cloud is potentially going to be none of the above. So the one thing that I saw driving this uh, besides cost was also speed, speed of processing, speed of experience. Uh, speed and experience are almost synonymous nowadays uh, with the advent of fi- or introduction of 5G. Now we can move more data across bigger timeframes in a smaller period of time. Give us an idea of what, I guess, consumer applications, enterprise applications, what they're becoming and what that means to you, the architectures you're setting up for your customers. Like, how do you envision, because you mentioned like what the right workload for the right job, I guess, how is the demand on the customer side starting to really dictate your customers, where you're going to implement services, how you're going to move compute closer to the customer? Give us an idea, you know, of course, it's all going to be done through stories. But we'd love to hear some of the stories of what you're seeing out there in the field. Yeah, the, the demand is crazy right now because consumer experience is driving enterprise and business requirements, meaning that because I, as a consumer, used to doing everything from my phone anywhere I want, um, I, as the business consumer, should be able to do the same thing. So what you're having is organizations and, and IT teams are being tasked with the unenviable uh, task of, of trying to do that in a way that is cost effective, secure, you know, has the visibility and control they need. Um, and so I think that that consumer experience is really driving that in the enterprise space. And with the concept of so many people working from home or working remotely now, now you've got highly distributed end users. You've got highly distributed applications living in lots of different places. If you try to draw that on a whiteboard, there's a lot of lines between a lot of things. And IT's job is to deliver that in a way that is highly available, highly performant, is scalable, is going to be able to be delivered with security compliance and governance and not break the bank. And that's tough. And that's tough to do all those things at once. What are some of, I guess, the new technologies or new, whether it's hardware or in the software layer, what are some of the new techniques, technologies, I don't know what's the best way to refer to that grouping that you see helping you companies like yourself engineer these solutions for these customers? I think automation is, is the biggest thing. You know, when you look at why would I move a workload to the cloud or why would I modernize it? A lot of it becomes how can I manage it at scale and how can I manage it more efficiently? And at the end of the day, that usually comes down to how can I leverage automation, infrastructures, code, things like that to allow me to do things not just more quickly, but in a more standardized way, in a way that has continuous optimization, continuous governance. I can make sure I'm not drifting off of standardized security controls. You know, automation really becomes the the hub of all that and really kind of transforming the way that IT is delivering services back to the business. And for yourself, what do you see having like, a, I'm assuming the more challenging learning curve is for traditional enterprises to adopt cloud, but you might tell me that it's actually just as hard for, for born in the cloud to adopt the co-location data center. Who do you see having a harder time building hybrid, this hybrid infrastructure that can meet really where the customer actually is? I think the answer is actually in the middle. So the, the answer is it's harder for them to work together. Because if you think about those that are building and developing the applications, their job is get things done fast, efficiently, and, and get new things to market for, for their end customers. 
on the IT side, on the infrastructure side, their job is to maintain security, cost optimization, all those components. Stability, and yeah. <laughs> to some extent, they're diametrically opposed forces. So the question is, how do you get those groups to work well together? So those are kind of like the two leg, two of the legs on the stool. The third leg is making sure that everything they do is in alignment with the business. Because if the if the IT groups and development groups aren't in alignment with where the business wants to go, then ultimately they're not an enabler, but they become a cost center, which is obviously not where you want to be. Yeah. Do you have a story or anything that you could share with us that kind of demonstrates these three factors at play? And um, you know, you can obfuscate the uh, the customer name, but we'd love to hear an example of how this comes about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we have a uh, a children's hospital that we that we work with out in California, and uh, they're they're kind of my poster child because every time we sit in a meeting with their IT teams, there is always a mention of of the patient and the patient's experience, and talking about how they make a kid's life better when they're in when they're in the hospital facing terrible mm. And so, to me, that is a group who really understands. Then we're talking about doing disaster recovery to the cloud which doesn't sound like it's going to impact a child. They're thinking about, okay, this, this service that this child relies on is going to be interrupted if there's a production outage, if there's not a good disaster recovery uh, plan. So they think about things like RPOs and RTOs, how long is something going to be down? They start to think about, okay, how long is a child's experience going to be impacted? I look at that and say, okay, now you got a group who's really taking back the business outcome, which is to you know to keep the children as comfortable and happy as possible and deliver the right level of service and make sure that matches a business requirement and make sure that business requirement matches a, uh, a technology solution. And to me, when you got that North Star like that, that is what really you know is going to drive the right the right tech solutions. You know, when you were just telling that story, I just think to myself, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. I'm sure some of our audience members are thinking about like man, I never really thought about software, network, connectivity as a life or death possible thing. If you're talking about children's care, you're talking about all different varieties. You know, of course, most of us with kids, we don't ever think about the disaster or worse end states, but like the reality is some kids unfortunately have to suffer through that. And then these care providers are having software is playing a part in that. So with that said, my mind immediately went to like the levels of redundancy that you now have to think about to make sure that, uh, because if software's powering the machine, like you said, if software's powering the machine that's keeping a child alive, it, basically, it just can't go down. It cannot go down. How do you think about redundancy when the, the data transfer is that critical and the, and the timeliness is that critical? How do you think about helping design and engineer a solution? What do you recommend to customers? Because in the past, for example, in the world of connectivity actually I came from, Sometimes people had a bad rap for overselling connectivity, but now it's like, you probably can't sell enough. I don't know. <laughs> I think it is, it's the, uh, the paradigm shift of when I'm building solutions in data centers, I can think of the terms of physical things. And if I have two physical things, that's better than one physical thing. And if the right. two physical things are further apart, that's even better because now if some geographic thing happens here, it doesn't impact over there. The cloud abstracts that in a, in a good way and a bad way. It's in a good way because of the possibilities it turns on. It's in a bad way because of the if you don't change the way you think, then you might architect things the wrong way. So, for example, a lot of organizations will say, well, I put my stuff in the cloud. It's highly available now. Yeah. Well, it's, it's as highly available as the service you put it into. And there's varying levels of availability on different services in the cloud. And if you look at any sort of best practices on high availability, you are building applications across multiple regions multiple geographic areas, and you do it in a way that harnesses the power of the cloud to keep that application up all the time. 
Now, if you just have the perception that if I put an app in the cloud, it's highly available, you are setting yourself up for failure because if that region goes down and you didn't build for multi-regions, your application's down. So super powerful and done the right way. I think a lot of times it's an education curve though, for those of us that grew up in the data center world, you know, having to learn how to architect IT solutions in a new way, especially as you start to think hybrid, right? Data center, colo and, and, uh, and cloud all mixed together. You know, when you were just talking about that for just a moment, I was thinking back to when I worked in social media uh, publishing and uh, a region like an AWS region would go down. And of course, everyone freak out because you can't watch Netflix. You can't check in on Foursquare. Like, yep. I'm, like I'm dating myself with that one. Yep. Uh, that's <laughs> that would happen. And of course, you're talking about more serious applications for yourself. When you see how things are, you know, you kind of hinted at it, right? The way software is now written also, the reliance on microservices, the fact that da- any given piece of data is now being transferred across who knows how many services before it comes back of an outcome or an output. You know, all these inputs are going in, going through all these microservices and outcome yeah. and output. Is that your philosophy? Like you take advantage of the best services available or do you try to think to yourself, hey, we probably don't want to use too many services. Give us an idea of how, I mean, surely you have a philosophy or the E plus philosophy that you say like, this is the optimal way to design and engineer a solution. Yeah. So what you're talking about is really, you know, modernizing applications, modern application architecture. And the answer is it's always better to be more modern, but it's a lot of time, (laughs) people and money to become modern. And also if you're buying applications off the shelf and deploying them, you don't have control how over how modern they are. So it's a, it's a right fit, right place, right application type of thing. So we're big advocates of each application, each workload is going to go through its own, we call it the journey to modernization. And that's, it's got its own decision criteria of why would I modernize it? What's the outcome of me modernizing it? When do I do it? Where do I do it? How do I do it? And then how do I manage it once it's there? And so that's kind of, we think about that life cycle that an application goes through and the more efficient an organization can be and having a flywheel that they can put workloads through to help them figure out that journey, the more efficient they can be in getting them there. So back to your, back to your original question there, I think, you know, in an ideal world, you want to take applications that are most impactful, that need the most scalability, security, availability, and you want to modernize as much of that as possible microservices that can be made highly available and scalable as needed, where they're going to burst up as necessary and continue to execute at whatever scale they need to, um, that have that modern security and micro segmentation built in. You know, that's kind of the panacea. And the question for organization is, if I have a thousand applications, how in the world do I prioritize uh, what to do? And that's when I'll go back to, again, the why. Which one yeah. has the biggest why? Which one has the biggest outcome that I can deliver for the company? Let's put that one at the top. Let's go figure out how to do that the best possible way. You know, when you were telling your story and just going back full circle, I kept thinking to myself, like, hey, I could just see Justin sitting, you know, you and your team sitting down with the customer kind of explaining, hey, we're going to use these level of microservices. Well, if you're going to use these and you have mission critical data, you need redundancy. Hey, if you're going to use multi-facility, you're going to need hardware. You're going to need multiple instances of hardware as well. You can't run. If all of your applications are run through one router, I know that would never happen. But if that router were to break on a hardware side, Everything goes down and you got to explain this to customers. And so then I put myself in that customer's seat, which they're hearing this, like everything's double. Everything seems like it's double, double, double. Now, if I'm saving lives, it feels like, okay, there's not a price on a life. I'm going to do that thing. But there must be like, how do you navigate or how do you work with customers when they start hearing like, hey, man, the budget's just getting 
this is just too much, Justin, man. You're crazy. Yeah. Like I, you got, you got too, you got so much redundancy, but I do I need all this? That's what they want to ask you. I'm sure. And, and that's where we always, you know, again, I'll go back to the why, you know, we'll start at why do people modernize? And there's really, there's four key reasons we see people modernize. One is reduce cost. Two is to increase revenue. Three is to reduce risk. And four is to enhance customer experience. Right. So if those are like the four key buckets, we always start with, okay, if they call, they usually come with a problem statement. And then gotcha. we'll say, if it doesn't fit into one of those buckets for you guys, then why? Why are we doing this? And maybe there's a fifth bucket for that organization. But a lot of times we'll find that maybe the thing they were looking at didn't fill one of those buckets, but there's a product over here that does. And so our approach is very much to, to work in, to work backwards from a specific why and say, okay, we're going to find a way to deliver this outcome for you. But we've had organizations come to us and say, I need to shut a data center down in nine months. I need to uh, refactor all my applications and move them. Like, well, you have a thousand applications and, you know, you're giving, you're giving yourself half a year or so to go do that. <laughs> you have the time, the people, the budget to go make that happen. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. And, and so that's why looking at each individual instance, each workload and figuring out a plan for it is important because, you know, that patient care system that keeps that breathing apparatus alive is not the same as the one that keeps the TV running in the corner. You know, and you got to treat them appropriately. They're all important in their own right, but they need to have tears to them. When you're describing this, my next question really revolves around a personnel skill, staying on top of these technologies, because you kind of hinted at a lot of the companies that rely on this the most they're not really software shops. You know what I mean? Like I'm a hospital. I might have a couple guys in it or gals in it, but I don't have that many. And I don't have that much level of expertise. I mean, excuse me, I'll take that back. Even if I have a lot of expertise, I don't have enough people straight up. I don't have enough people to modernize application stack across yeah. the, all my facilities in a timely fashion. How do you personally encourage your team to stay abreast of all the things that they need to be aware of? And then Give us an idea of how that discussion begins, because on one side, you have a, like a CIO, CTO who kind of knows what they want to do, but they just, they probably don't have the skills in, how do they even begin to understand what you're talking about? <laughs> Give us that yeah. kind of that picture. We're, so we're in the fortunate position of the fact that, you know, we have a, we have a global team that has different levels of subject matter expertise across all these areas. So they get to stay up to speed on the latest and greatest in all those areas. And then we touch customers across all different sizes, shapes, geographies, verticals, et cetera. So we have a pretty expansive view of that. When I think of our customers, even those who have the biggest IT shops, they have an, a big IT shop because they need that to keep the lights on. They need that right. to keep doing the things they do. That doesn't mean that they're staffed to the point where they can be always keep up the what's the latest and greatest with AWS and Azure and Google and microservices and containers. And it, it's, it's pretty impossible. So. I think a big part of it is, um, you know, we encourage our clients to just invest in people as much as possible. And that doesn't just mean headcount, but it's just ongoing education. You know, we do a lot of work with with our clients around just, you know, anything from lunch and learns to just kind of keeping up to date on what's the latest and greatest and, and making sure it applies to the things that they do, because it's tough. They have to keep the lights on and they have to innovate all at the same time. You know, they've got multiple day jobs. For yourself and how you construct your team or how your teams are constructed or pro whether it's project teams, entire company, how do you at, at E plus, how do you guys encourage or require your teams to stay abreast of all this stuff? Because I always think about this because I one time had to go I, when I was working for a networking company when we went to AWS. 
the just the sheer amount of things they launched. I was like, what is this? Crazy. Like, the, I'm like, I like, what is this? How am I supposed to know what any of these things do? Right? Do you guys just assign one to each person? Like, hey, you got to learn what this is. You got to figure this out. Soup to nuts, and you got to apply it in a project. I don't know, uh, because that's just one. Of course, all the cloud providers are launching products. All the hardware manufacturers launching products. I mean, there's a lot of things to evaluate. Let's get serious. Yeah. How do you build your team to stay up with all of it? You have a full-time job just looking at AWS and Azure releases on a daily basis, right? I mean, that's kind of the reality <laughs> of the continuous innovation world we live in. A couple of things for us. One is it starts with culture. So we bring people in um, that have that culture of wanting to learn, you know, wanting to stay sharp across multiple things, wanting to cross-train and mentor, et cetera. So that's that's one thing, keeping that at the, the foundation of everything we do. Uh, we invest in, you know, online tools so they have access to training when they want to go learn about something. Uh, we allocate time for them in their, you know, in their weekly, monthly, quarterly, um, their schedules to go out and, and be educated on things. We develop training paths, right? So if you're a really good storage administrator, then it makes sense for you to start to learn storage platforms in the cloud, become a better advisor to your clients by being able to talk the way that the way that they talk. And then we have discipline level areas. So we have people that are specific experts on AWS, on Azure. Their job in the lead technical architect type of role is learn and stay up on those things and then distribute that information out to the teams. And then that in turn, that allows that information to get distributed out to our clients via ongoing conversations we have. Hey there, IT Visionaries listeners. It's time to supercharge your network with Zeo, the North American leader in modern network infrastructure. Zeo connects critical data centers across the United States, Canada, and Europe with high-capacity metro fiber and extensive long-haul dark fiber. Trusted by the world's most innovative companies, Zeo embodies what's next in networking. Discover Zeo's expansive network maps on their website and see where their network can take you. With low-latency, reliable 400G and 800G-enabled routes, it's the modern network solution you've been searching for. Visit Zayo's website today to unlock the power of your network and tap into the technologies of tomorrow. Go to zayo.com slash network right now. There you go. It sounds like there's a absolute dedication or, uh, you know, you're carving out and prioritization of actually learning this stuff. I know a lot of companies kind of, you know, they were ask their team members to learn stuff. It sounds like it's required <laughs> at E plus. And, and, uh, and if you're not, and if you're not culturally with that, you probably, you won't like it there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. If you're not, you know, that, uh, that mantra is probably not a great fit. Yeah. For yourself, you mentioned in the conversation earlier that you were, you know, started with data centers. Of course, you've now had to learn cloud because you're the VP of cloud and data center. Uh, so you know exactly how they work together. Give us an idea about your own personal journey. How did you start getting involved and interested in technology? And then what I really want to know is your career has spanned a massive shift in technology. How did you approach, like, I guess, learning all those challenges? Give us an idea of who you are. Yeah, so I, I started off as a programmer uh, when I was when I was super young. I started off as a programmer, and I loved the uh, analytical methodology behind it, but I hated the sitting in front of a computer and not communicating with people all day. <laughs> so I, uh, I ended up moving into uh, I worked for a, a large storage company. Uh, the beginning part of my career, and I think the first transformation was going from the guy who had to know every little tiny thing about everything to being the person who could tie that back to actual benefits so that I could be a good pre-sales advisor for my clients. So that was kind gotcha. of shift shift number one, right? Um, and that was all close to home because storage and infrastructure is where I came from. And then uh, the next shift was going into uh, going out of storage and looking across all aspects of, of enterprise architecture, 
and you know being able to advise around all pieces of networking and security and all the components that come around it. And then finally, you know, cloud shift started really picking up steam. And what it turned into there was just learning a whole new paradigm and surrounding myself with really smart people and, you know, kind of listening to what they had to say, following along with, with how they learned um, and spending a lot of time with clients because you can get really book smart. But if you can't connect that to what your clients care about, it, it doesn't really work. So just hearing the care abouts from CIOs, CTOs, CEOs, CFOs, IT directors, everybody, what's, you know, how's cloud benefiting you? Where is it a challenge? And really just using all of that knowledge to start to, you know, to, to continue to self-educate and just try to, you know, use that to, to help people out. I want to say this. You are the first person on IT Visionaries who has ever come from a pre-sales background to okay. send to the, which is really cool because let me tell you something. I, as someone who used to sell software for all anyone out there who's listening and you're a developer and you're not really sure how the sales game works, this is how the sales game works. It's always going to start with some business developers doing some cold outreach. They're going to hear the most no's. Then they have an AE that's going to try to navigate the, the account. But then the pre-sales guy, the young Justins are and gals are the people that actually can tangibly describe how technology is going to benefit the, the business. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's not like because you said that was a big pivotal part to like it was huge. where you where, where you got, are today. Going from being, you know, the person writing the code and, and being the, the in the weeds person to try to having to go out and advise on things. That's a huge shift. And part of the reason I moved from being at the at the large uh, storage company into uh, more of a, a, a VAR and consulting side is because I didn't just have to walk in every day to talk about a product. I could come in and talk about an outcome. And if if the product over here wasn't the right thing, the solution over here wasn't the right thing, I'd go find another solution. But I could I could be a problem solver. And to me, that was that was more in my wheelhouse than being just a subject matter expert, like a single widget. When you think of that that journey of uh, you know be, being able to understand the technology as well as describe the technology and its benefits along the way, you know this this ability to communicate obviously has put you on a different path. Is that something you would think you would recommend to anyone out there that's a you know engineer or young developer or whatever the case may be, and they want to do a more? Would you recommend be looking for a pre-sales type role because this, you know, it's, 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 I think it's counter to what probably, or it's, it's certainly not talked about a lot. How about that? <laughs> it's tough. It's one of those, you, I think you either love it or you hate it because <laughs> in growing up more of a hardcore engineer, you know, I hated public speaking. I didn't like any of these aspects of it. And then just as I, as I evolved, but I just really enjoyed hearing from people about their challenges were helping them solve those problems and just gathering all that knowledge to try to use it to help other people. So for me, it was like a no brainer, you know, it was, it was yeah. the right direction to go. I know plenty of engineers though, who are, who are not comfortable with that and who are absolutely amazing at going and creating the solutions on the back end. And without that balance of both of those, I don't think the world works. So I think it's one of those things where like, if you love, if you love people and you love getting out and just, you know, listening and advising and just trying to use that knowledge to help people, I think pre-sales is the best place to start. It just gives you a chance to really get out there and get a huge knowledge base. And here's, here's another question I have for you for when it comes to people who are young, let's say young and aspiring or just aspiring. You don't have to be young to be aspiring, but the... <laughs> Proliferation of technology, of course, has created many, many paths people can take, right? So like, there's just going to be always a question, am I a specialist 
or am I a generalist? If you were to tell someone who's learning, let's say my son who wants to get into computer engineering, what would you tell him? Like, would you say specialize in a, like be front end, be infrastructure, be network, be like special, be cybersecurity, specialize or generalize? So it's going to depend what your passion is. If your passion is being the absolute best at something, go specialize, right? Go, you want to be an absolute ninja in, in cybersecurity. You should go down that path early. You should develop a niche and you should go strive to be the absolute best at that. If your passion is about like general problem solving and around, you know, building things, then I, I recommend actually generalization because I think if you the more you the breadth of understanding helps with problem solving, helps with building up new solutions and and building new ways to do things. So, I mean, it really kind of depends what drives you, because uh, if you go down a specialization path and that's not what drives you, you just went down here and now you got to pop back up and try to go somewhere else. I don't want to say you're starting over, but you know, you're, you're definitely kind of uh, taking a step back to take five more forward. There you go. Well, for yourself, you know, you, you mentioned earlier, you did this career. Were you a generalist or a specialist? It sounds like you studied a lot of different things, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. Yeah. So I, I definitely, I, I, I've been more of a generalist throughout my life and career. I definitely started off as a programmer. Uh, I did some security specialties early and then I was a storage guy for quite a while. Uh, but since then, it really became more more across all things enterprise architecture. And, and I think that's kind of where I've stuck since then. Have you ever done anything on the front end? Because yeah, everything you mentioned is back end work. Hey, do, have you ever done front end like uh, any UI work? I personally have not. No, I have. I have, lived on, I have lived on the customer side. I've been on that front end. I started in uh, in IT for healthcare uh, throughout my uh, my college and uh, early or late high school years. Uh, but I've never anything on like the, uh, the UI or CX work or anything. <laughs> That's awesome. I just had to ask because it seemed yeah. like you were touching all different types of things. I mean, I I would recommend to anyone having seen different technologies and. I don't think anything's easy, but if I had to make a bet, backend work seems to be, uh, I'm just going to, I would put the recommendation on backend work. I always think to myself there. <laughs> you can't make, the, problem, the problem with UI is that everybody has an opinion and you can't make That's right. happy. You know, on the back end, right. you deliver an outcome. It, it, to some extent, it doesn't matter how pretty it is, but on the front end, you can't make everybody happy. I like the idea of measured success. So if you tell me it's speed, yeah. okay, I move this data from A to B yep. and transform it faster than anything else. Or it's security, hey, I put, encrypted it from A to B. But if you tell me, give me a great experience. Make it look nice. I don't, I don't know what that means, man. <laughs> Drive through your neighborhood and look at all the houses. Everybody who lives in them thinks they look the best. And they all look totally <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, Justin, it was awesome having you on our show today, kind of sharing a little bit about your career and what are some of the things and projects that E plus is up to. But before you go, we'll ask you a few questions so our eyes get to know you a little bit better. Hey, listen, you have in your background right now, what caught me was it's a huge wave, uh, but you, a golf picture with a huge wave behind it. Uh, give us a little, are you an avid golfer or do you play or do you just watch? I love to golf. Uh, I'm not a great golfer, uh, but I love, love playing, uh, love going to new courses. So it's, uh, it's Pebble Beach up there. So I'm one of my all time favorites that I uh, had the honor to play one time. Oh, so you have played Pebble Beach. What other golf courses have you been to that are quite memorable to you? Uh, Shadow Creek in uh, in Las Vegas is uh, is one of my all time favorites. That one's in the middle of the desert, but they basically built it up so you feel like you're in South Carolina. So they brought in all of like native trees and bushes and everything from all the places. Everything's got its own drip system in the desert, so it stays alive. It's just a, a cool experience. 
Oh, that's kind of cool. It's like going through like different ecosystems yeah, or something. Yeah, 100. There's a waterfall on the 17th hole, which is pretty cool. <laughs> You're and based on your background, uh, for those of you who are watching the YouTube clips, we can see that you are an avid sports fan. It appears to be. Uh, we see basketballs. We see uh, different mugs and insignias. Are you a big sports fan? It looks like you are. And then what are some of your favorite sports games, teams, whatever the case may be? Yeah. So I kind of merged sports and technology uh, early on in my career. I used to uh, I used to do the website for our local uh, AAA baseball team when I was like 13 years old. So I, oh, that's awesome. Yes. Yeah, so when I started off, I actually thought I was going to be a sports writer uh, was what I wanted to do forever. And uh, always been huge into sports, uh, you know, big diehard Indianapolis Colts fan. So Chicago guy who drives over for every game with my son, uh, uh, season ticket holder for the Bulls. Uh, not so great this year, but we had a nice little run for a while. And uh, was born in Atlanta. So big Braves fan. Got a nice little World Series uh, two years ago. It's been hard lately in Chicago, but you're, you're, in one of the, you're in one of the meccas for sure. Yeah. You got all the major sports teams represented. For yourself, what is, I guess, your favorite live sporting event? Favorite live sporting event to go to is football. I'm just, I'm a total, I'm a football junkie. So I'll go to any football game anywhere and uh, totally geek out on it. Now, and you said your Colts are your favorite team. They are a little, little tough to talk about right now. Well, <laughs> you can, you can ask me after the draft how I feel about the team. We'll see. <laughs> well, that sounds good. Yeah. Justin, it was great having you today on IT Visionaries. Thanks for sharing all the things that you're working on at E+. Thanks for sharing your philosophy. Like I said before, you're the first person I met that has said, hey, I went from pre-sales to where I am today. That is really cool. And it makes total sense explaining business problems. I think you are well-suited for your job. Anyone wants to meet Justin, you can find him. His name is Justin Mesker, M-E-S-C-H-E-R. We'll link up the socials below. Justin, it was awesome having you on IT Visionaries. A lot of fun hearing your story. And listen, Colts, we'll talk to you after the draft. I don't think I could sugarcoat it. I don't know who you're going to draft, but I don't know if you're a playoff team. Like next oh, year. oh, I don't think so either, but who knows? man. There you go. Listen, you had a great run, though. You had some great quarterbacks come through there. You had decades of quarterback help. So, you know, you, you've had some great success. I can't complain. <laughs> Before you go... We want to ask you your opinions and questions on a little bit of network health. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on a second. I think we got a little bit of jitter. No, I'm just playing. It is time to check yourself with the network health checkup brought to us by Zayo. This is where we ask questions about network health, specifically for modern infrastructure. Justin, we know that, listen, no matter how good your applications are, if you can't deliver it, you ain't got no application. Are you ready to answer these questions? Fire away. All right. What are some of the major challenges you think that engineers and architects face in today's digital landscape? I mean, if we're talking network based, all of a sudden your network went from the four walls of the building that you uh, that you reside within to, you know, out into the ether, um, you know, going into SaaS services, AWS, Azure, GCP, everywhere else. And, uh, you know, you're stuck figuring out how to not just plumb that together and make it work, but how to make it work with high availability and performance, which uh, is no small task. I saw this this thing this uh, stat about how every time you add a new location, all the new connected lines. Yeah, I forgot what the exponential factor, but it's like it exponentially increases the complexity. In terms of network monitoring, what are some of the best practices you think organizations should follow? I mean, number one is don't treat don't treat the cloud as a black box. Uh, a lot of people will monitor up to the edge of the cloud and say, "I got my side handled; they'll handle their side." And the reality is, the networking only gets more complicated as you start going into the cloud. Having a 
overall approach, framework, policy, procedure on how you're going to do network monitoring, network management, super, super important, because if any one of those pieces is not performing, goes down, is unsecure, et cetera, you know, you're, you're going to run into problems. So I always say, you know, the cloud is, is an extension of your network and is as important, if not more important than the pieces you directly kind of physically control. That's good, man, because uh, you are correct. You said it earlier in the show, and you said it now again. A lot of people, their attitudes, once it gets to AW, once it gets to a public cloud, my job is done. It's like, no, like Justin says, your job has literally just begun. Yes, <laughs> for sure. What are some of the lessons you've learned from recent, you know, you work on across a, a huge variety of clients. There's gaps, right? There's things that have happened. What have you learned? I and mean, we always learn from our problems. What are some of the things that you've learned from some of your customers that you th- have applied or want you recommend technique-wise to all your future customers or anyone listening? Yeah, I would say one size does not fit all. Um, I've, I've had clients who want the easy button. And they say that I'm going to leverage a third party, you know, kind of cloud on-ramp that's going to get me on-ramped via a colo or somewhere into every cloud provider. And that that's the easy button. I've had some clients who have really large, complicated, uh, you know, multi-node, multi-cloud solutions where they actually needed to build their own hub and spokes. They need to get closer to their clients. They need to get closer to specific cloud regions. And they actually built their own hubs and spokes across the U.S. and other countries and have their own visibility stacks and governance stacks built in there. Um, and neither of those are wrong. You know, we work with a video game company who is delivering their end user is is people sitting at their consoles at their houses. They need to get that data as close to them as possible. So uh, one size does not fit all. Anyone who tells you that, you know, I would I would ask for another opinion. Um, I would say that it's (laughs) all about figuring out what your specific use cases are and how to make them happen. Well, listen, if you're listening out there and you are operating a company and you're being told that this one solution is the only way to do whatever it is you're trying to do my man justin here is saying that is probably not true you might need to get it further check that out